Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 146. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we discuss big data in archaeology, again, but we start with Paul's volunteering at a local museum and really use that as a discussion to talk about the future of some archaeological publishing as a result of COVID in 2020. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. Welcome, Paul. How's it going, man? It's okay at the moment. You and I were just having a nice chit chat about this and that and everything else. Yeah. But it is, we are recording currently on Tuesday, the 19th of January, and this is the first day back to school with significant numbers of students and teachers present in the school. And this morning was unbelievably hectic. And so um, I, I'm sure this conversation with you and me, Chris, is going to go way off the rails today because I'm two beers in and <laughs> I've already cracked a bottle of wine. <laughs> nice. But I'm decompressing a bit from, you know, the hectic nature of this morning and things are, you know, nothing bad happened. It was just, you know, we can't get the neat bar to work. We can't get this to work. I'm not on the network. What's going on? What happened to my account? You know, just all that stuff piling up at, at a faster rate than we could deal with it. Yeah. But we got through it by noon. And then after that, I just had to deal with a bunch of other crud that came down my way. You see, I said crud instead of other words. How are you doing, Chris? I'm not doing too bad. Yeah. I, I think, I don't know where I was last time we spoke. If I think about the time frame, I think I was still in Charlotte, North Carolina, but now we're in Florida, mm-hmm. Port Orange, Florida, technically out near Daytona Beach, which is a little easier to orient off of. Daytona Beach is like a five minute drive from us. Okay. So this, it's interesting down here because there's no pandemic in Florida. I don't know if anybody knew that, but I'm not sure if it was ever here. So Floridians are immune to that, I think. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, it must be the sun, right? Because the sun kills it according to our our best scientist, which is Donald Trump. So he's pretty good. He's the best. He's huge. He's huge. Huge. So huge. Yeah. (laughs) So you had a first day today back to school. We also have a last day in this country today, which we'll see what the country looks like tomorrow after a hundred criminals are released from prison tonight, according to (laughs) all the news reports. So I don't even get me started on all the Blackwater stuff. that (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I know. I know. So, hey, let's talk about some better things, because I can't remember if we mentioned this on the show, but you and I have definitely talked about it, you know, pre and post and stuff like that. But you started volunteering at a museum up in near where you live. So let's talk about that a little bit. Right. Okay. So the museum, uh, I mentioned this a couple episodes ago when we were talking about gifts tech gifts for archaeologists. I said, you know, one thing that you might want to do, which is a nice gift, is give somebody a membership to a local archaeological association or or a a small museum or something. And then I took that to heart and applied it to myself and 
got membership at the Institute for American Indian Studies, which is in Washington, Connecticut. And that's a very short distance from where I live in Brewster, New York, as the crow flies, but there's a big lake between us. Mm-hmm. And I, it takes me about 45 minutes to drive out there. Anyway, that, that's not important. Mm-hmm. The important thing is that I found out about this because I was cleaning up my, what, my meetup notifications to get rid of things that I was definitely not going to be participating in during a global pandemic, uh, namely pick up soccer games in New York City <laughs> and yeah. seeing if yeah. there's something closer uh, yeah. to me that interested me, hiking, nature, history, archaeology. And I found out that this place actually has a, an archaeology club that runs a little excavation at, I think it's an archaic Indian site right next door to the museum. Okay. And so I saw that and I was like, oh, cool. So I contacted the, the people at the museum and said, could I volunteer? And yes, I have. And so uh, under the um, watchful eye, I guess, of Paul Wegner, <laughs> who is the assistant director of the museum. I hope I've got that right. I'm sorry, Paul, if I got your title wrong with that. I've been helping out in their collections. I've been helping with a little bit of cleanup and cataloging and putting away in their storage facilities some of the uh, materials. They had a huge, huge donation of contemporary Native American art pieces that was donated to them Mm -hmm. by somebody who passed away recently. And, uh, And that's taken up the entirety of their workroom. So they need to clear that out so they can actually process some other things. And so I've been I've been yep. doing that. It's been enjoyable. I've been going there on the weekends for the last few weekends. And I will continue doing so in the future. You asked me this because you had something in mind. What was that? Well, you mentioned that they do a field school, which is interesting on a couple of levels for me because A, I didn't really I didn't really know that any museums or especially small like local museums even did field schools. My question is, well, and you mentioned too that they obviously didn't do their field school last summer because nobody did because COVID and, and we just couldn't get together like that. But my question that I'll ask related to that, I'll ask this one first. What do they do with the field school data? Do they publish this? Is this something that they just keep with the museum? Or, or you do you even know that yet? Like, have you even gotten that far with asking them that? I don't know that fully yet. But first off, it's not a field school. It's a club, an archaeology club, but it's supervised okay. by actual archaeologists. So Paul himself is an RPA. And okay. the person that I contacted initially is also an archaeologist and a professor at I think Western Connecticut University. I'd have to double check. But then when I was there, there's another, not volunteer, but somebody who's working on some of their older collections, things that were donated to the museum. Her name is Stephanie. She is, she's a contractor and a CRM archaeologist based out Mm -hmm. of stores. And she took a, a lot of time to show me a bunch of lithics because she's working on an idea about where archaic and paleontic sites are in northwestern Connecticut. And I'm just beginning to get my brain around the terminology and the periodization and the typologies and such. So if I misspeak about any of this, it's because I'm an idiot (laughs) and I don't know this stuff yet, (laughs) but I'm trying to learn. It's so much fun trying to learn. Anyhow, so the materials that they get from the excavation go into the museum and they get cataloged and some of them get displayed in the museum. They get properly processed by actual archaeologists and then they have a very good storage facility in the museum. They have to reorganize that storage facility because they've got they also work with modern contemporary artists in anthropological materials in conjunction with various tribal organizations and 
with natives in positions of authority that can actually, you know, mediate this. It's not just one of these, you know, white guys going and collecting stuff kind of organizations. They actually yeah. are very conscientious and very much engaged with a number of different communities. But the archaeological materials are then going into the museum and going to, you know, getting cataloged properly, getting photographed and all the rest and conserved and filed away. Mm. But they're, they're a tiny little museum. And so they, they can use extra help. And so it's been fun for me because like I said, again, a few episodes before, I'm going to be getting myself out of ed tech this next year and into hopefully into CRM archaeology and doing that for a living. Nice. And this is a toehold for me to actually learn about the materials, learn about my local area, which I've never known anything about archaeologically. And learn what the materials look like, know what the lithics look like, know what the terminology is for the periodization, you know, all down the line. And everybody's been extremely accommodating and it's been fun. I mean, it's really yeah. a lot of fun for me to actually work with. And so far, I've only been working with these donated art objects from contemporary artists. Sure. But the kind of standards that you apply are very similar. Right. In terms of okay. measuring, documenting, cataloging, conserving, not that these art objects need conservation, but but they certainly need to be wrapped up carefully and packed properly to be put in storage so they don't break. You know, so this all resonates with me and it's all been a hell of a lot of fun. And that's what I've been occupying myself with. Nice. Nice. Well, the thing that made me think about it, especially just when you said, anytime I think non-CRM archaeology dig, I think field school. So <laughs> that's why I said field school. But even so, they're still digging. They're still excavating. Because I was actually wondering, my wife, Rachel, and I, Rachel's an archaeologist as well. We recorded an episode of the Archaeology Show where we discussed some news articles that are in the news lately or have been in the last couple of months. So we just wanted to bring those up and talk about them. And something that I can't even remember if we talked about on the air, but maybe we're talking about just pre or post was the the journal cycle like the journal article cycle how that's going to be affected by no field schools happening in 2020 pretty mm. much around the planet and there there may be some field schools happening now like southern hemisphere field schools that are experiencing their summer at this point in places that you know maybe have dealt with the pandemic a little better i don't know but chances are we're going to be hit pretty hard by that because a lot of academic papers are written by people doing field schools and people analyzing those mm -hmm. data sets at the end of the summer and then analyzing them over the winter and fall and then, you know, starting to publish that stuff in the spring and summer coming up. Now, it might just be that they have a chance to get caught up <laughs> because right. I would imagine a lot of that is very far behind and maybe they've got the chance to write those papers that they haven't had a chance to write that just go a little bit more in depth with some of these topics and really explore those further. I hope that's really the case. And, and we have plenty of papers, I have no doubt, coming up in the next couple of years, but I think we're going to feel the effects and just see a different kind of majority paper probably in the 2022 cycle to be honest maybe not even 2021 because it the cycle for doing journey's journal arc is usually pretty long but i imagine 2022 2023 is going to be different and deeply affected by 2020 no i agree with you and i actually have an idea about that because i know that while peru for example was having a lot of military and paramilitary troubles a lot of archaeologists who work there started publishing old data, things that they excavated, mm -hmm. you know, 
five, 10 years ago that they never got around to publishing, but now they, because they couldn't do any, any field work, they had no other choice but to publish. And certainly, you know, me as a Near Eastern archaeologist this is something I've seen between Iraq, where I initially wanted to work, Yemen, where I subsequently wanted to work. I've been yeah. like chasing around places that have fallen into strife in a way that absolutely precludes doing any kind of field work. And Mm -hmm. So that's a shame in human terms. I think that in scientific terms for the field of archaeology, it's actually beneficial to have these, these kind of interstices where you can't do the field work, which is your default position <laughs> as most archaeologists, and you have to then go back to what you did two, three, four years ago, analyze sure. it, process it, write it up, publish it. You know, even though it's it's an absolute horrific shame what the world has gone through and what our country has gone through over 2020. And I'm sure it'll be well into 2021. Mm -hmm. For our field as archaeologists, it might actually give a lot of elbow room to, to do new stuff with previously collected data. And I think that is actually perversely, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I think so too. And the sheer amount of data that we collect on some of these sites just makes it so that it's really, really difficult to process this information in a in a timely manner, right? I mean, we've got tools and stuff that are coming around about that, but it's just really, really difficult to handle all this stuff. So I think possibly along those lines, uh, we're going to enter into our discussion about big data in relation to an Ars Technica article that we're linking in the show notes that I mentioned in the introduction. And we'll do that on the other side of this break. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. -E Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba. 
All right. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 146. And as I alluded to in the last segment, we're going to talk about big data, the primary topic of today's episode. And actually, I originally found this article because I've got a I've got an archaeology subject, I guess, mm-hmm. saved as something I follow on my Apple News feed. And I check it uh, probably daily and save different articles and things like that I want to read or talk about or something. Yep. And it's, it's interesting the different news outlets that come up with some of this because Ars Technica is not one I would have necessarily thought about coming out with an archaeology article. Uh, then I saw who the author was, and it's Jennifer, um, and I'm pretty sure you pronounce it Ouellette because I've, I've seen her before on other things. She is part of a power couple if she's still with him. I can't remember the guy's name that she's married to, but he's like a well-published physicist or astrophysicist or something like that. God, I can't remember what the guy's name is, but her and him together, like she is, I think she's in biology, like her background or like genetics or something, something really highly technical, but both of them are incredibly smart, you know, well-published people, but she also does writing for different journal outlets and things like that. And one of these is Ars Technica. So yeah, I think Ars Technica and Forbes, ironically, because Forbes used to publish garbage, the, the, they yeah. right now are the two go-to mainstream venues for good discussions of archaeology, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, they're publishing some great stuff. And I do have some, I guess, things that I didn't find too flattering that I wanted to say about the first part of the article, but I think that's more our fault than her fault. Mm-hmm. So I'll talk about that in a second here. But the article is called Archaeology is Going to Digital to Harness the Power of Big Data. And then it says basically as a subtitle here, combining traditional pick and trial fieldwork with a sweeping bird's eye view. Ars Technica published this on January 2nd, 2021. So this is basically in response to the Journal of Field Archaeology special edition on big data that was published before that. And we'll link to that in the show notes so you can see more details about it. It's open access, which from a journal coming from Taylor and Francis is surprising and welcomed, I guess. Because <laughs> <laughs> ordinarily, you know, we don't get access to these articles unless you like know somebody and they can send you a PDF. But so this is completely open access. So we'll definitely send it over. And it actually says it's the February special edition, which of course is already released because of the weird naming of journal articles, months and things like that. <laughs> so Right. And it's it's based off of a special session at the twenty nineteen SAA right. meeting. So maybe that's why it's open access. I'm not quite sure why, but I, and I haven't read most of the articles in here, but mm-hmm. holy cow, this looks like an absolute goldmine of really cool new ideas. So definitely click that link, go download some of these PDFs and, and mm-hmm. read them and, you know, elucidate yourselves. Yeah. And I was at the 2019 SAAs. I'm trying to remember where the heck they were. I was going to ask. Because I've been to pretty much all of them for the last like, I don't know, six or seven years. And I know it was that. I'm trying to remember where the heck it was. Since we skipped a cycle, now I've totally lost it in my brain since we didn't go to Austin in 2020. I think that's where Austin, where 2020 was supposed to be. Anyway. Yeah, right. So wherever that was, when Paul tells us soon, there's a good chance I was in this session uh, because this is the kind of thing I would have gone to. Yeah. I mean, I want to just make some points about this article, which again, is not is not the author's fault. It's not Jennifer Olette's fault. It's really our fault for not representing them by our. I mean, archaeologists fault for not really, I don't know, getting our heads in the game with this whole thing. Right. But she makes it sound like 
this is like happening right now. Of course, Paul and I have been talking to people doing big data stuff for years now, right? Several years. And and the people that we've talked to have focused their entire careers around these kinds of things. I mean, you look at like Eric Kanza and Sarah Kanza who run Open Context and that whole thing with that. And that's kind of a side part of the DINA project, the Digital Index of North American Archaeology, I think is what it is. Anyway, big data has been a concept that archaeologists have been talking about for a really, really, really long time. Mm-hmm. It's just for some reason now we're getting the tools and we're getting the, the tools, I think, are becoming more affordable and more accessible to more and more archaeologists. And and that's a good thing, right? Obviously, that's a good thing because we've always had big data. We just haven't had the tools to handle the big data we've been recording. I mean, you look right. at... You look at some of these excavations. I mean, let's even go back to like Egypt, right? King Tut's tomb or something like that. The mountain of data they recorded in the 20s when that tomb was discovered was phenomenal and it was all done on paper notebooks. Right. And so that's never changed. We've always had a wealth of information and we've just, through our tools, increased the amount of stuff that we've been recording. Mm-hmm. And now we have the some more tools to actually analyze those big data sets, which I think is really the thing you need to talk about here is it's not collecting and storing big data. It's analyzing big data and coming up with patterns that we didn't see before. Well, it's interesting that you're talking about big data, and we've discussed this on the podcast before, what actually constitutes big data. They they kind of hint at, in this article, in Hulet's article, what big data means for the context of this discussion. Mm-hmm. But, it's, uh, but I like that you talk about Egypt and uh, King Tut's tomb, because that's when I teach archaeology. You know, I talk about stuff that happens in the 19th century in Iraq and Syria, but when it really takes off as archaeology, not just treasure hunting or antiquarianism, is in the range around 1920 to 1930, which encompasses mm-hmm. King Tut's tomb. It also encompasses the Royal Cemetery of Ur, which is my specialty yeah, yeah. for my MA paper. And now, wow, I'm feeling really good. I feel like I'm doing some big data stuff because <laughs> way back in 98, when I did my MA, I looked at elevations, measurements and elevations of different layers of the soil in the Royal Cemetery in order to try to reconstruct because some of the measurements from the um from the excavation were done from a benchmark and some of them were done up or down from the layer of the soil at that particular point because the soil has Mm -hmm. different colors and as it slopes downhill and so i tried to do that to, to understand the architecture anyhow so that that was not big data but it's the beginnings at that point of the collection of data at a scale that a hundred years on, we can talk about as quote unquote big data, or at least analyze with the tools of big data. And I think that's that analyze with the tools of big data that this article is specifically about. Mm -hmm. And I do also want to like call out very quickly here that they talked to two archaeologists in the article, Stephen Wernke or Wernke, and I'm sorry that I've mispronounced your name one way or the other. And Parker Van Falkenberg. And Parker has been on this podcast twice now. He was on episode 95 where he was not talking about big data per se. He was talking about data collection, but also episode 133 last year, I believe that would be, where he in fact was talking about big data. And a lot of the stuff that gets talked about in this article, he also talked about on this on this podcast. So it, it, it resonated with me. It reminded me of things that he said, and it was kind of exciting to see it down in this, you know, even though right. APN, we try to be as big as possible. We're not a <laughs> Condé Nast backed 
<laughs> publication medium no. like ours is. Yeah. Uh, so it was nice to see it on that on the big stage per se. I wish we could get our arse over to some money like Condé Nast, but you know it's not going to work, right? Uh, All right, maybe. Uh, so, so, so Paul mentioned uh, he looked it up while we were talking there in the chat. It was the Albuquerque essays that was 2019. I I do remember that one because I drove to that one weirdly because I was doing a project over in Southern California, Arizona area, and it was easier just to drive there because I was already down there. So yeah, now I remember that one. So, yeah, one other thing I'll mention here that the article she mentions right at the beginning is I'm just going to read this sentence. Archaeology is finally catching up with the so-called, quote, digital humanities, unquote, as evidenced by a February special edition of the Journal of Field Archaeology devoted entirely to discussing the myriad ways in which large scale data sets and associated analytics, which I think is the key phrase there, are Mm. transforming the field. I think that's really been the big thing missing because there's a lot of there is a lot of bias in archaeology and and really I don't even mean like bias towards, you know, small things that you might think of when you think of bias. I mean bias just because we have our own cultural perspective as people who live in the 20th century, right? Hmm. We have our own cultural perspective growing up and how we did things and it's hard to look at something that's thousands of years old in a culture far, far divorced from yours, even if we're looking at something, say, you know, on, on our last archaeology show, we talked about Pompeii. One of the articles we mentioned was this uh, one that went around all over the place. Everybody reported on it. But it was that like food stand that they fully excavated and almost reconstructed. Right, in Pompeii. In Pompeii, yeah. And, but it turns out there's like 80 of them there, right? This is just the first one that's been fully excavated and looks nice and they can finally talk about it. Turns out they were all over Rome. Of course there would be, right? That's one of the things that where our cultural bias would be like, yeah, okay, sure. That makes sense because this was a big city. People got to eat. People got to make money. Those two things intersect and hashtag food trucks. <laughs> so Yeah, I, I'm glad that you said food trucks because that that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking about these. I mean, not just food trucks, but bodegas, depending where yeah. you are in the country, right? Fast sure. food joints, whatever else. It transforms where you are across the United States, but it's, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Anywhere you have an intersection of a whole bunch of people that are from a different areas and they are doing certain things that is their livelihood as far as what their careers are. And you, and you have a, a large enough society that not everybody has to cook and grow food and do all those things for themselves. Mm-hmm. They actually have money where they can buy that stuff. Anytime you have that, the market is going to create food for those people. And it's going to create that, like that invisible hand, right? It's going to create that thing that's going to say, okay, we'll supply you food if you're going to supply us money. And that's how that's going to happen. And I think that's probably been around for as long as we've had people in those situations. It's just a natural thing. So that's a good assumption we can use our cultural bias for. We could say, yeah, that was probably used for this because why wouldn't it be, right? Right. If I'm walking around a city, I'm going to want to eat something and I don't have a garden in my back pocket. So I can't just do that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you look at 2000 years ago in North America and there are some parallels. There are some things that you would say, yes, I would assume in these areas that these things did exist. Now, I have no firsthand knowledge of it, but in places like Cahokia, some of the bigger like southwestern cities, for lack of a better word, because they really were cities like Chaco Canyon, at Pueblo Benito, places like that, different places, obviously down in uh, the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and you know around those areas where you have these big cities, I would just make the natural assumption that 
yes, there were probably similar things there. Maybe there wasn't like a food stand or something like that, but people were probably selling things that you could eat while standing on the street, unless there was some you know, cultural or religious prohibition against that, right? Like something that said, oh, I can't touch something made by another human, but I just, I just can't see that being the case. I would make that assumption. Or, you know, my mother-in-law talks about how she was raised in Eastern Europe in the first half of the 20th century. You shouldn't be eating on the street because other people might not have, you know, the same yeah. access to food and therefore you're kind of rubbing in their noses. So there's other, there, there, there are plenty of different yeah, kinds, yeah. like cultural reasons why you wouldn't necessarily do that. It might be uncouth <laughs> in that mm-hmm. example to be eating in front of other people unless, you know, you're a laborer and had no other choice. Right. There, there are a lot of different ways to look at it. And, and that's actually, I think, one of the advantages of when we look at archaeology and anthropology with a, a very broadly open mind is that there, there are different ways you can interpret an almost identical situation. Right? Sure. Sure. And understand that it might have different impulses, different kind of cultural baggage behind it for why something is done mm-hmm. or not done. But as archaeologists, we often don't have access to that because it's from societies that are long gone. We can't go and interview somebody and ask them why they do this mm-hmm. and why they don't do that. So I, this is just a call, you know, a general call to keep a, an open mind about the different ways that you can approach the same situation. Come to the same conclusion for entirely different reasons. Right. So I started out this discussion by really talking about what big data can do for us. And I think we've illustrated really well, in my mind, what the analysis of these big data sets can actually do for us. And let's bring that up in segment three on the other side of this break. Back in a second. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 146. Today, Chris and I are having kind of a, uh, you know, off the top of our heads discussion about (laughs) big data and this and that. And back to this Ars Technica article, I want to bring out a couple things that, that just struck me as resonant with what we've discussed on this podcast in the past, uh, particularly with Dr. Van Falkenberg. The first one was that Stephen Vernke, and again, Vernke, Wernke, I apologize, mea culpa, mea culpa, (laughs) that I mispronounced your name one way or the other. But anyhow, he says that he wants to complement, and that's the word that was that was pulled from the article, traditional fieldwork, which is what we as archaeologists tend to value most highly with digital tools. And I think that is absolutely 100% spot on with what we 
Chris, you and I like doing, mm -hmm. right? We both yeah. are field archaeologists at our core, and we both like tech, and we both think that the tech can totally enhance what the field archaeology does. And field archaeology, yeah. in terms of methods and methodologies, hasn't changed much in a good hundred years, with the exception of what's been layered upon it with different technological approaches, with different ways of we can analyze reinterpret our data, right? So the digital tools, which is the last 30 or so years of 40 years, maybe have just expanded that, you know, exponentially. But then the other one I wanted to highlight here was Parker Van Valkenburg, who has been on our uh, our podcast a couple of times. And this resonates with what he was talking about in episode 133. So the quote is, so it's natural that big data analytics are first being applied to data sets that weren't specifically collected for archaeological analysis in the first place, like satellite data. And that, I thought, was just really got to the nub of what we as archaeologists do. And Chris, you and I as tech-heavy archaeologists do, is that there's very little archaeological analysis, archaeological theory, archaeological anything that comes from archaeology per se, we tend to be these like sponges that soak up things from anthropology and sociology and chemistry and physics and whatnot and, and figure out ways to use it. And so when I read that, I just immediately thought of, okay, so I'm going to put on my, my professorial hat here and talk about Klaus Levi-Strauss, right? So mm -hmm. archaeology in the U.S. is anthropology, first and foremost. And it's one of the four yeah. fields anthropology disciplines. And as a anthropology undergrad, a long, long time ago, <laughs> <laughs> I read an English translation of Klaus Levi-Strauss's The Primitive Mind. And uh, Klaus Levi-Strauss, this uh, French anthropologist and, and sociologist and philosopher who devise this notion of structuralism about how to analyze societies and how they structure themselves. I did not like that book one bit. I did not mm -hmm. like the writing style one bit. <laughs> but one thing that really <laughs> stuck out to me, the only thing that really stuck out to me that I've never been able to shake in the 30 or so years since I read that book was that he talks about bricolage and bricoleurs, which is this this ability to take pieces of this and that and the other and create something new. And he's talking about it from the art world, but then passing it back into the anthropological world. Right. And I think why it's stuck with me is because that's what archaeologists have always done. We've always been bricoleurs. That is, we take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and we mash them together to make something new in this really cool yeah. way. And so I can't get away from the notion of Levi Strauss's bricolage and what Parker Van Valkenburg is talking about here with taking these different kinds of technologies, and he specifically mentions satellite data, but there's certainly other ones. There's certainly other ones that he uses, and he discusses them again on this very podcast, about how we take these pieces and we put them together, we mash them together and see what fits and what doesn't fit and what <laughs> makes kind of a cohesive whole that can stand up on its own. And, and this is exciting to me because I think that that's where big data, quote unquote, big data, has been working its way into archaeology. It's not that we can use big data as big data 
But we look at the tools of big data, the, the things that mm-hmm. the people that analyze, you know, Google searches, for example, will use. Um, yeah. And we take the pieces of those that we can, you know, graft onto this funky bicycle we're building and, and use them. And so, so that, that was exciting because this is the first time I think I've ever seen in a major media piece anybody approach that kind of ad hoc experimental sort of archaeology. And I think that, again, this is something that you and I and probably every other person that does archaeotech, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and a good number of our listeners do, mm-hmm. um, is that they, they take different pieces of things that excite them and interest them. And they try to figure out how they'll fit together to make a new understanding, a new analysis of their world. So that, that's what, that's what really got my juices flowing when I was reading this article was I saw that and I was like, Oh, 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 oh I know that. <laughs> I feel that in my bones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all very well said. And, and, pulled out of that article because what was really striking me about it too, because I saw, I I responded as well to some of those comments that uh, Parker was making about, you know, taking some of those other data sets that weren't originally collected for archaeology, like satellite data, like you said, or even we have large LIDAR data sets now that Mm -hmm. were, I mean, very clearly not collected for archaeology, but could be used in that way now. And, you know, a lot of this big data analytics, which is what we're talking about here, is finding these either intersecting patterns where we have different data sets, one that maybe was collected for archaeology and one that was not, and finding out where they can come together in ways that we just can't see because there's too much data, or taking those, either one of those big data sets and applying different rules to them and applying different filters to them and saying, well, what can we get out of it based on this? And that's what I was leading to with that whole second segment, talking about what archaeology has done in the past and your biases and things like that, these big data analytics can help remove our biases and show us those patterns that would otherwise be invisible. And we might say, well, that pattern doesn't make any sense. Well, that doesn't mean it's not real. It's still a pattern. And patterns don't happen naturally. You know, they might, they happen, they happen naturally in the context of that humans are natural. You know what I mean? So humans have natural behaviors and tendencies that that any psychologist will tell you hey we're all basically the same it's textbook <laughs> like, like if this happens and this happens you're gonna be this kind of person and i hate to say it but that almost always rings true right you always have your outliers but if a certain set of circumstances takes place like in your childhood your upbringing there is a statistical probability that you're going to have some of these attributes when you grow up to be a human if nothing else changes right yeah and that's because we're humans we fall into these patterns and we fall into these things but it's difficult for us to see outside of that and for us to see these these things that would be these these patterns coming out of these big big data analytics and then you take those different data sets and you mash them together, like you said, Paul, and you come up with completely different theories about things that we thought we understood because we couldn't, we couldn't see that big, you know, it's just not possible. You know, I'll be, I'm going to be a little bit of a pedant here and say that, that there are patterns that happen naturally. You think of like the stratification of glacial varves, right? Sure. That's a pattern. Yeah. Tree rings, that's yeah. a pattern. There, there are, you know, there are lots of patterns that happen naturally, but we as, you know, as educated, as mm-hmm. intelligent, as observant 
human beings, whether we're archaeologists or any other kind of researcher whatsoever, to try to differentiate those patterns that happen naturally and those patterns that happen because of human behavior. And so I'm just going to back to the first thing you brought this in on. As I was leaving the museum the other day, a woman came in with her two daughters and one of the daughters, probably about fifth grade, had Mm -hmm. four different things that she'd collected out on hikes in the Northeast. (laughs) She's like, I think these are points. Wow. And I looked at them and one of them was a beautiful piece of slate that was almost certainly not manipulated by people. It was rounded from weathering and whatnot, but it was just this long, thin, pointed object, right? Mm -hmm. Another one was a piece of quartz, really thick and chunky, but it looked to me like it had retouching around the edges. Another one was this triangular tanged, looked like a partial point. Also fairly heavily weathered, but I couldn't quite tell. And another one, she's like, I think this might be like some kind of cutting implement or whatnot. And I couldn't tell whatnot. It definitely was triangular and cross-section, was about three inches long and may have had a cutting edge. Sure. And so even though I don't know New England lithics, I had this great little teaching moment with this child to be able to say, okay, so this one here doesn't look like human made because I don't see anything about it that says humans. This one here, even though it's kind of ugly, it's a stone mm-hmm. that's very hard to make thin, right? To make beautiful right. points, but it looks almost certainly to have been retouched on the edge, which I'm willing to bet. I give me 90, 95% that this is human made. Uh, the other one, mm-hmm. because of the shape, even though the weathering, I was like, you know what? I think this looks just like some stuff that we've got over there in the cabinet. Right. Just insects. <laughs> and then the last one is like, I'm, I have no idea. But, but it's so that identification of patterns that are human versus those patterns that are non-human, I think is, is really important. So that's me just being pedantic here. But that's right. where the big data stuff actually, I think, really can apply itself to because nobody that's doing this is an idiot. Everybody mm-hmm. that's doing this really wants to find out what are meaningful patterns and what are random or non-human or basically like harmonic patterns, right? You know, so you pluck right. a string and it has a harmonic vibration. That's a pattern. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that people design that. Uh, you know, so the, that ability to think through those things, I think is really interesting. And actually that that brings me kind of roundabout and maybe a little forced, but to one of the other quotes I had from Parker, he said, archaeology is great at the small things, right? It's mm-hmm. looking at small stories. Like how did this post hole get made? How did this pit, this trash pit get made? And at what time period, right? And that's something right. we've all grappled with. Does it, does it relate to the surrounding architecture? Does it predate it? Is it something intrusive from later? Why is this shirt up in this level? Was it deposited mm-hmm. at that level or was it moved there by a rodent sometime, you know, decades, centuries, millennia later? So th- those small stories, he says, archaeology is great at the field archaeology. Again, back to what Stephen had to say. But the big data is really useful, he said, for building these kind of generalizing models, these covering models and such, which I was thinking about, you know, 50 to 100 years ago, the, those big models of how people interacted and how societies evolved and everything were mm-hmm. not made with all that much data. Archaeologists often, sociologists often, thinking through, doing word problems, but they didn't have the data to back it up necessarily. You know, they had a few bits of data 
that they could use to try to piece together something huge like Oriental despotism and rivering cultures and whatnot. (laughs) And now we actually have the tools, if we're willing to look there, to try to assess these things. And so that's what, again, back to this article and back to what Parker was talking about in episode 133, looking at the Incan Road Network and trying to figure Mm -hmm. out how that worked in conjunction with the Spanish conquest right. of South America, you know, and, and seeing patterns, meaningful human generated patterns for why that would ha- be a case, which I think is really cool. And, uh, you know, this is way beyond my pay grade. This is way beyond <laughs> my mental capacity, but I'm at yeah. least, I think maybe smart enough to, to understand that there's some there, there. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I, when you're talking about the story that um, that girl that brought in those potential artifacts, I think that that could be a teaching opportunity as well for teaching somebody like that about big data. Because, you know, if you find these things randomly out in the forest or in a stream bed or something like that, and you pick them up, and I should say seemingly randomly, but you find these things. And you bring them in and you're like, hey, look at this weird thing I found. My brain said it looks like something because I recognize this pattern. Is it something, right? Well, there's two things that we can learn from that. A, it might be something, but we know more about it. If it's not obvious, then Mm -hmm. we need to look at the context, right? Because sometimes it's a projectile point and it's obvious and something like that. But if it's not, and it just could be something else, we need to look at the context. We need to look, where was that found? Was it in association with other cutting implements that we do know and can identify positively and say, yes, this was a bison kill site on the Great Plains. We know that. And pretty much everything here was used to process this bison, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And we know that. Like, this tool doesn't look like something we've ever seen before, but look what it's in association with and look what we can do with it. More than likely this is a thing that was used for this. So we can use that as an excuse to talk about in context, big data like that. But then also, you know, if you know the context, you could record all sorts of information about the environment that you may know nothing about and how to process it and use your big data analytics later on and combine that with other data sets to say, well, yeah, this turns out this is something and we can add that to what we know now about a list of tools or something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw out two other terms here. You know, we were talking off air before we started recording about one of my favorite podcasts, which is the um, Monster Talk podcast. And one of the terms that comes up, well, two of the terms that come up very frequently are apophenia and pareidolia. That's when you have a lot of doilies. <laughs> wow. wow. No, that's just when you have two of them. Par- pareidolia. Pareidolia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's dolia, pareidolia. But that's the the human tendency to see shapes that we recognize and to see patterns, right? Because that's the way our brains are structured. So I I think it's very interesting that we can then, if you understand and accept that that's going to be our default, sort of how we see and interpret the world, layering this other level, this big data level of analysis and critique, especially as critique, on top of that, might be able to break down these false associations that we make and maybe make some other new, hopefully more accurate ones. I mean, I don't I don't at all recommend replacing that on the ground local discrete story kind of approach to archaeology with some 
you know, God's eye views in the sky, because I think that's equally fraught. But I think that you can use one against the other in the same way that mm-hmm. we use multiple sensors for, you know, any kind of sensor array kind of, uh, you know, subsurface view, one against the other to try to get a truer sense of what's actually happening below ground. We can use that to get an actual truer sense of what's happening societally with people across time. And I think that's mm-hmm. a great thing. And I think that that was also in this article, this Ars Technica articles, I think that this was a level that was in there implied throughout it, which made me happy to read. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we are running a little long on this, so I'll just leave you guys to check out the show notes. We have linked to this article and the Journal of Field Archaeology. And let me take this opportunity to make one small correction from the beginning of segment two, because I looked it up. Jennifer Ouellette, it's crazy. She's actually not a scientist. I just thought she was because of what she writes about. And, and I've read a lot of her stuff in the past, but she's a science writer. And there's a comment here. She actually has a BA in English and no scientific background whatsoever, but she got her job writing for the American Institute of Physics. And there's a quote in here on her Wikipedia page. It says that she was an English major with no science background whatsoever. While working as a freelance journalist in New York City, she was hired by the American Physical Society after they found out that it was easier to teach physics to people who knew how to write than to teach writing to people who knew physics. <laughs> so it was easier to teach physics to a writer than a physicist on how to write. No, yeah, no, that's awesome. That, that, and I think there's a lesson in there. I'm not sure. Yeah. Maybe we should explore this in some other episode. But there's definitely right, something right. To, be, to be learned there. And she's, she's very good. And again, I do recommend this article. Yeah. And I do recommend that our listeners go then to the JFA <laughs> special edition and download whatever articles there look interesting to them. Because I think there's a lot of meat here. And that's that. Yeah. Also, please wash your hands. Yeah, absolutely. Wear your masks. Social distance. I'm so <laughs> fed up with this. <laughs> Let's get out of this, please. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. 
Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.